Good morning. Let's start with prayer. Our Heavenly Father, uh, in a lot of ways, this has been a heavy week, and you know that. We thank you that you're with us, and we remember in your word that it says that we're to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn, and we have reason to do both. And we thank you that in addition to the fact that you're with us always, that you've given us each other to share these burdens. I just pray that you would bless this this congregation and our time together here this morning. I pray that you would be with us and um, the, the words of my mouth and meditations of our hearts would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, you'll notice on the bulletin that it says that it's Lent. And I forgot about that completely, so this has nothing to do with Lent. Um, But to make up for it, I've decided that I will be an example, and uh, for Lent, I will give up eating pickled pig's feet. So, you have my, I I just want to, I thought that that would be a good example, and it'll be hard, but but I'm confident, so... So I've entitled this message, uh, The Cosmic Hardware Store. I think I can explain why soon, I hope. Um, One of my favorite verses is Proverbs 14.12. Do any of you know that by heart? Okay, well, good, I'll I'll read it. Yeah, that's right. I knew Todd would know. Uh, So, but thanks, yeah. Well, yeah, you probably read the Bible before too. All right. So so thanks for that. Yeah, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death, or the way to death. That's kind of a weird verse to like, but I like it because it's so true. I like it because it sums up the cause of so many of our problems. You know how many bad ideas I have in a given week? The title of this message might be a good example. Um, think about how many bad ideas you have or hear or hear about. And that can be a problem. We've accepted Christ and committed to following Him and are committed to following Him. Life's busy and we have our thoughts and our ideas and our plans. And we sometimes want to substitute our bad ideas for what God has in mind for us. Sometimes we might be stubbornly trying to impose our will in place of God's. We may not even notice we're doing it. My plan might be to go to a certain college or get a certain job or marry a certain person or live in a certain place or be a missionary or a great athlete or great musician or whatever I want to do. When I approach God about these things, and all those things are fine, but when I approach God about those things, what's my mindset? Is my starting point that God knows what I want and I'm just asking Him to pull things together and work out details? Or have I surrendered my plans to Him? Have I made up my mind that some parts of my plan are completely mine and not up for negotiation? I'm pushing through no matter what. I just need God to sign off on it. I go to church every week, so there's really no reason God would have a problem with it. When something doesn't work out, do we become bitter or do we have trouble letting go? And I have an an analogy for this. I'm calling it the Cosmic Hardware Store. Now the description I'm giving might sound cynical, but just give me a minute. Um, I don't think most of us purposely do this or even notice that it's happening, or if we notice it, we might stop. And what I'm really getting at, before I actually go on to the analogy, is our tendency is to ask, 
where does God fit into my plan rather than where do I fit into God's plan? So the Cosmic Hardware Store is where we go to get everything we need to carry out the life plans we've made for ourselves. God works at the counter. We arrive and we let Him know what we need and He supplies it. We pay for what we need with good works or church attendance or by being nice to people or something like that. Now, I think that sounds kind of harsh and I don't know that, that we consciously do that. Maybe many of you don't. But I think at a minimum at times it's more like a cosmic tax or a cosmic fee where we pay our our due to God and um, in the form of some good work and, and He'll leave us alone for a while and um, let us continue with our plans without bothering us. So we should be seeking God's will every day. And I confess I'm not nearly as diligent at that as I should be. And I don't think that getting every detail right or even misunderstanding what God is calling us to for a time is necessarily a matter of salvation. But it can make our daily battle more challenging. It may cause us to miss out on blessings we might otherwise enjoy. And it's entirely possible that, like I said, we don't struggle with this and that's good, but it doesn't hurt to guard against it. Sometimes we don't notice until God doesn't cooperate with our plans. So I want to examine whether we have a tendency to do this by posing some questions. The first is going to be, what are we willing to give up? What will we surrender? And the other is, how do we respond when things don't go according to plan? So I'll start with the first question. What are we willing to surrender? By looking at the story from Mark, looking at a story from Mark. It's the story of the rich young ruler. So I'll be reading from Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. He answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved, <coughs> loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word, and he went away sorrowful, sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus looked around and, his, and said to his disciples, How hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? And the, the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men, is it, men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. 
So this story deals with salvation and accepting and following Christ, and I think it's still relevant as believers um, as we encounter various struggles and make decisions. It's not only applicable to the unbeliever, but to anyone who steps out in faith to follow Jesus. Again, this is not to say that if we get any detail of any decision we face wrong, that we are lost and have fallen away. I'm presenting it to hopefully sharpen our focus and keep our eyes on Jesus and our feet on the right path. When it comes to the Bible, sometimes the details matter a lot. They're not just there to make the story more interesting. The details often have significance. There are two details about the man who approaches Jesus. The first is that he's rich, and that's the one that we focus on. And the second is that he's young, and that matters too, and we'll come back to that. The rich young ruler approaches Jesus with a question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He also addresses Jesus as good. Commentaries I've read suggest the man doesn't understand who Jesus is. Uh, He doesn't think of him as any more than a traveling teacher based on the way he addresses Jesus. Jesus tells him that no one is good except God. The rich young ruler doesn't really react to that. He either doesn't understand the significance of it or he doesn't care. Jesus starts to answer the young man's question by pointing out that the young ruler knows the law of Moses. The young man confirms that he's not familiar with it, but he has kept the law since his youth. So this establishes that the young man is concerned with righteous living and respects the word of God. He knows the law and tries to avoid sin and obey the laws of Moses. I don't know exactly what he expects Jesus to say. He probably thinks Jesus is going to commend him or maybe offer some additional words of encouragement or maybe he's going to suggest some minor changes or give some general admonishment. Instead, Jesus instructs him to do the one thing he's not willing to do. One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. The young man goes away saddened. He's not willing to give up what he has, not even for treasures in heaven. Jesus tells his disciples, it's humanly impossible for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. With God it's possible, and the famous comparison of the camel passing through the eye of the needle is used. That would have been shocking, the idea that the rich would have a hard time entering the kingdom of heaven. It would have been shocking to the the disciples because in their understanding, um, at the time they believed that that the wealthy had found favor with God. And so in their understanding, if, if the wealthy would have a hard time getting to heaven, then what chance would the poor have? And Jesus turns this idea on its head. Now we can sometimes be distracted with the issue of wealth in this story. It's important, but there's more to it than than just the wealth itself. Lots of faithful people in the Old Testament were very wealthy, and even in the New Testament, the possession of material wealth does not automatically disqualify someone from receiving salvation. I just want to look quickly at uh, 1 Timothy 6, 17-19. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. It doesn't say that the rich must always sell everything they own or they're going to go to hell. They are to be generous and not fixated on their material wealth. They are to focus on the things that are eternal. Their hope is to be in God and not in material riches. So money and wealth are dangerous and it's hard to overcome some of the temptations it brings. 
but simply having abundance does not of itself condemn a person. We remember that Jesus says we cannot serve two masters. So if wealth itself is not the issue, what's the problem? The issue is not that the rich young ruler has a lot of material wealth. The issue is that he's just not willing to give it up, not even in exchange for eternal life. Remember that the man in this story is young, and that's important to consider. It's important because his unwillingness to follow Christ was likely not just that he has lots of money. It was probably because he had a comfortable life and big plans of his own, and money makes following our own plans easier. Money makes it easier to ignore God or believe that we don't need him. We would say that he has his whole life ahead of him, or maybe he was in the prime of his life and he had a lot going on that needed he needed to tend to. Or maybe he got married and bought a, or bought a cow. That's a different story. Uh, the wealth enabled him to live his best life now, so to speak. And because he had the option to pursue what he wanted, the plans that made he made for himself, parting with his wealth was not an option, even if it meant giving up eternal life. Following Jesus wasn't as important or desirable as the other options or plans that he had, so he went away in sorrow. He was doing good deeds and not breaking laws. In modern-day terms, he never missed church and was probably there most Wednesday evenings. He helped lead worship now and then. He watched sermons on YouTube in his spare time, and he probably even went on some mission trips. And that, that type of faith currency should be enough to buy whatever we want, pay the cosmic tax, or, or buy something at the cosmic hardware store. Maybe that will appease God, or at least keep Jesus happy while the young man pursued other things. But the bottom line was, he might be doing a lot of things, but he didn't know who Jesus was or care what he wanted. He just wasn't willing to surrender what he had for what God was calling him to. Whether I have a lot or a little in this life, I must be willing to surrender my plans or hopes or desires to follow Jesus if I want eternal life. Now, there's something that's really awesome that we should also consider. We're not always asked to give up what what we might want or what we're good at. Often God uses those things and blesses us in them. We see it all the time. God uses a good musician as a worship leader or a songwriter. He uses someone who's good at building things to help people repair old or damaged property. He uses a mother and a wife to be a missionary in her own household. He can even use a rich athlete to help spread the gospel. So I want to be clear, there's nothing wrong with wanting something or having ideas or making plans. Those are all necessary and good things. That college we may want to go to might be exactly where God is calling us. That person we, we might want to marry might be exactly who God had in mind for you before the beginning of time. That job you're trying to get might be the fulfillment of God's perfect will for you. He's not just up there looking to take things away from us just because we want it. There are times when we have to decide if we're willing to give up what we think is best or what we want. Godly wisdom and discernment are necessary to figure it out. We should be seeking godly wisdom. We need to pray for discernment and to be obedient. The question posed here is this. When my plans or what I want don't line up with what God's asking of me, am I willing to give them up? So let's look at uh, Mark 10, 29 through 30, and then we'll move on. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, except one who will receive a hundred times as much 
Now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions, in the age to come, eternal life. Sometimes we have to be willing to discern between discern and decide between things that have earthly value and things that have eternal value. Is it where God, is it where and when God is directing me, or is it just what I want? So we looked at what happens when we're asked to give something up. What happens when we lose something? So I want to look at another example, the book of Job. So we know that story. Before I go further, I want to be clear. Feeling bad or crying out to God in times of suffering is not wrong. I'm not saying that at all. Even questioning how or why things happen is not wrong. We need to ponder and examine things. We need to take our cares and concern to God. We need to open up to God and lean on Him, especially in times of great difficulty or sorrow. Job suffered tremendously. What he went through is more than I've ever dealt with. It's probably more than any of us have. I don't know how I would do under those circumstances, but I'm not being critical of how Job deals with loss. I also think about how Job lived before the law was given, certainly before the Holy Spirit, so the reference he had to consider what he was going through would have been far less than what we have, which makes his faith that much more commendable. So the details of Job's story are really heavy, and I'm going to talk about that because it's important. I don't want to lose sight of the point that underlies the subject. There's one aspect of the way that Job approaches God that we need to be aware of as it relates to confusing our plans with God's will. So speaking of wealth, Job had vast wealth and a family and was held in high esteem by others. He lost everything in one day. Support and advice he received during this time of great suffering ranged from his wife. She was all that was left of his household. And she suggested that he give up, that he curse God and die. It ranged from that to his three friends who took turns accusing him of being a wretched sinner who must have brought this calamity on himself. I think we're clear that Job was not being punished for some specific sin or failing. God identified Job as upright and blameless. Later, God says that Job's friends spoke incorrectly when they accused him of some terrible sin. In a way, that idea is basically another misguided variation of that cosmic hardware store illustration. In this version, I don't have enough faith currency to afford the materials I ordered and to carry through with my plans. So I'm sent to collections, and God garnishes my wages. He takes away from the good things that I would otherwise have. It wrongly says that I'm subject to divine punishment for something I've done. Now, it's true that bad decisions or sinful behavior can naturally lead to bad outcomes or have lasting consequences. That's not the same thing as saying that every loss or hardship someone faces, especially things out of our control, like illness or accidents or natural disasters, are a divine punishment for their failings. Job is mourning in sackcloth and ashes, and there's two ways that Job handles his loss and pain. First, Job shows amazing faith. He never turned away from God. He was able to find comfort in God at times. Job says in, in Job 6.10, But it is still my comfort, and I rejoice in unsparing pain, that I have not at all hidden away the words of the Holy One. Job's second approach was to ask why God did this to him. There's a couple examples. In Job 7.20 and 21, Job says, I have sinned, or I'm sorry, have I sinned 
What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target? That I am a burden to myself. Why then do you not forgive my transgression and take away my iniquity? For I lie in the dust, and you will seek me earnestly, but I will not be. Now Job definitely deserves some latitude here. He's dealing with a horrible situation. I'm not saying we should be able to brush off tragedy and not be grief-stricken. I'm not saying that we're wrong to be hurt and filled with emotion when something happens to us or someone we care about. That's part of healing. In his suffering, Job openly and honestly expresses his frustration to his friends and to God. And more than once, Job says he wishes God would just kill him. We probably would feel that same way too in those circumstances. There's nothing wrong with approaching God openly in a time of great sorrow or brokenness. And we should do that. And many of the Psalms are good examples of honest dialogue between God and man in a lot of different, many of them difficult or dire situations. And God knows our hearts, so there's not really any use in hiding how we feel from him. But there comes a point in the process where Job crosses a line. He goes from venting his grief and calling out for mercy to questioning God's sovereignty. Job says later in in, uh, chapter 13, verse 3, but I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. He wants to argue his case. So that means, or it implies at least, that he has a valid argument against God, what God's done. So part of accepting God's will and plan and surrendering our own is appreciating who we are and who God is. Job, mista- Job, <laughs> Job mistakenly believed that since he wasn't guilty of some terrible sin, He could approach God and question his purpose or his decision or his wisdom or maybe notify God God of something that he might have overlooked. We're not sure how long Job had had suffered. I've seen anywhere from two, two years to 42 months. It's just not known for sure. After the dialogue between Job and his friends ends, God does appear before Job in chapter 38. He speaks to him from a whirlwind or a storm. That sounds terrifying. So I want to read a few verses from uh, chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. I'm sorry, I'm reading in the wrong verse. I'll get to that one in a minute. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? But what were its foundations fashioned? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, when I fixed my limit for it and set the bars and doors, when I said this far you may come but no farther, and here your proud waves must stop. Have you commanded the morning since your days began? and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it. 
It takes on form like clay under a seal and stands out like a, a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and the upraised arm is broken. Have you entered the springs of the sea or have you walked in the search of the depths? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? You comprehended the breadth of the earth. Tell me if you know all this. God answers Job's challenge by asking him questions. He asks Job if he can explain how the universe works. This continues almost uninterrupted for four chapters. At one point there's a brief pause in chapter 40 where Job's given a chance to answer. And Job realizes that he's made a mistake. He doesn't say much and then God continues in, in uh, chapter 40 verse 6. And I'm just going to read a few verses of that. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that I have been that you may be justified? Have you an arm like God, or can you thunder with a voice like his? Then adorn yourself with majesty and splendor, and array yourself with glory and beauty. Disperse the rage of your wrath. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. Look on everyone who is who is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together. Bind their faces in hidden darkness. Then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. So we can clearly see in, in those verses that Job, even in his immense suffering, has pushed the demands on God too far. God asks Job if he really wants to condemn God to justify himself and then invites him to step into God's shoes and save himself. So a couple things. It might sound harsh, but God doesn't owe Job an explanation. It's obviously painful for Job and God cares about him, but that doesn't mean he's in a position to judge God. The other thing is that God can still rescue Job, but Job can't fix this himself. When God's done asking questions, to Job that he can't possibly answer. It's anywhere from 60 to 77 questions. Job quickly and humbly repents. I just want to read what Job says in chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. I know that you can do all things. This is Job speaking to God. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Here and I will speak, I will question you, and make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, therefore I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. So Job confesses to God's might and power. Job admits he didn't know what he was talking about. He had challenged God about things he couldn't possibly know or understand. He said that he was wrong, and he fully repents. I just want to look at some things with regard to Job's confession. So first we see God's sovereignty. God makes promises, has made promises, and he has character attributes. I watched a sermon where R.C. Sproul explains how there are certain things that God can't do. He can't die. He can't lie, for example. And there's other things. If you want to know more about that, uh, you should check out this sermon called Eternity. It's pretty amazing. I've shared it with some of you. I'm like the rich young ruler. I was watching sermons on YouTube. So 
I was saying uh, that God is sovereign. He has supreme power and authority. He doesn't have a boss. Just because he's sovereign doesn't mean he's harsh or distant. It doesn't mean that he's the boogeyman or that he's gleefully waiting to strike down people or trick people. I wouldn't even want to imagine a God like that. He's patient, compassionate, gracious, and full of mercy. He loves us, he forgives us, and he's mindful of us. He sent his own son to die so that we could be in heaven with him forever. But he doesn't take instructions from us. He doesn't need us to explain things or figure things out for him. Secondly, Job realizes there's a lot that he doesn't understand. God has a divine plan, and we don't always understand, and we may not like it. Yet we can trust him because of his nature, his character, and his promises. And we also know that even some of the good things we don't like are intended, or I'm sorry, we even know that some of the things we don't like are intended for good. One of those things is discipline. Hebrews tells us about that. Hebrews 12, verses 4 through 11, speaks of the nature and purpose of God's discipline. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. But those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he flogs every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are not without discipline, of which all of you have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he, he, he disciplines us for our benefit, so that we may share his holiness. And all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. But to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I think this is one of the reasons God uses the parental title to describe his relationship with us. He's our father. I didn't always understand why my parents disciplined me or why they said no sometimes, but I knew that they loved me. It still wasn't easy. Looking back, I can see that they had my best interest at heart. I think we can all, I hope that we will all someday look back at, at our earthly lives and feel that same way. In his repentance, Job acknowledges that he does not understand. That's an acknowledgement that God is greater than we are. Let's also remember that we, we can't perfectly understand the mind of God. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are, my ways your, or nor are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Again, there's nothing wrong with wondering why things happen. And God is merciful and offers us comfort. I think of uh, the verse in Psalm, verse, uh, chapter 34, verse 18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and save the, saves those who are crushed in spirit. And we don't have to look far to see God's mercy and compassion. At the end of the story, Job's forgiven and restored. God rebukes Job's friends and Job offers a sacrifice and praise for them. God restores Job twofold. He doubles everything that Job lost. Sometimes we get it wrong, 
We try to push through with our plans or ask God to sign off on them. And we think that maybe since we haven't done anything terrible, God won't mind or shouldn't mind. We can be thankful that when we turn in repentance, God forgives and restores. This might be one of the most important things to remember, that our sin's gone completely and we're restored as sons and daughters. In the story of the prodigal son, the son is welcomed back and his father rejoices. He wasn't just given a position as a servant. He was given the finest robe, a ring, and sandals. He was fully restored to his position as a son. And God's forgiveness is like that. I want to share a story that I heard as part of a sermon several years ago. There was a young person, young man, who lived in England, lived with his parents, and for whatever reason, they no longer got along. He decided he didn't want to be a part of their family or their life. And so he went out on his own. And after some time away, he came to realize that that relationship was important, that he cared about them and he wanted to be a part of their lives again. And so he wrote a letter to his parents and he said, I'm sorry for what I've done. If you can forgive me and will have me back, then put a white handkerchief on the clothesline and the property that these people lived on was right up against a railroad track. And the son told him that on a certain day and time, Tuesday at 2 o'clock or whatever, that he'd be going by in the train and if he saw the handkerchief, he knew that, that he'd been forgiven. So as the train approached the house, and the, servant, the, the son was nervously awaiting, he could see from a distance that not only was there a white handkerchief hanging on the line, but from one end of the property to the other was large white sheets, and they had covered the property with anything that they could, or they had attached sheets to anything they could. And that's what God's forgiveness is like. It's complete. So I started by quoting Proverbs 14:12. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of dis- the way of death. When we insist on our way, it can send us in the wrong direction. It's not always easy to know what God wants us to do. God's gracious in that process. He's patient, and when we fail, he welcomes us back if we approach him in repentance. If we're earnestly seeking God's direction, he will give it. And that's what I believe is meant when Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks it will be opened. That may refer to receiving salvation, or it might also be applied to the ongoing divide guidance for the believer. I mentioned the notion of surrender several times, and I want to close by looking at a quote from a book. I think that as we battle daily with the struggles of this life, it might be helpful to consider. The quotes from the book, uh, The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Houston's been reading it lately, and that brought it to mind. Uh, It's a really good book. If you get a chance, read it. Even more interesting when you consider Bonhoeffer's life. But here's the quote. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, 
but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it's the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. So those are really challenging words, and I struggle with this all the time. And I know that we're not always going to do this perfectly, but I think it gives us a target to aim at. Jesus tells us that it's a daily battle in Luke 9.23. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And with that in mind, I'll finish with Lamentations 3.21-23, where we see these words, these encouraging words. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Close of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for the opportunity to come together before you. This life is challenging in a lot of ways, and we want to seek your will and do what you want. Sometimes we have our own ideas. Sometimes they get in the way, and other times they're exactly what you're calling us to. We just pray that you would be with us as we work through that. And we thank you that you're merciful and that you're with us. We pray that um, you would be with us this week as we continue to deal with challenging things. And pray that we would just um, remember you in those things and trust and be faithful. We thank you for the food you've provided. We ask your blessing. Thank you for that, and um, blessing on our time of fellowship together. In Jesus' name, amen.